you look with me, please, first this morning and this afternoon, in the book of Exodus, chapter 28. Messages by yoke is easy and my burden is light, so I hope that I can make the message consistent with the phrase. Um, we'll read first of all in the book of Exodus, chapter 28, and verse 36. Exodus 28, 36. And thou shalt make a Netzer, or a diadem of pure gold, engrave it upon it like the engravings of a signet holiness to Jehovah. And thou shalt put it on a blue lace or a blue string, that it may be upon the turban, upon the forefront of the turban it shall be. And it shall be upon Aaron's forehead, that Aaron may bear the iniquity of the holy things which the children of Israel shall hollow in all their holy gifts, and it shall be always upon his forehead that they may be accepted before the Lord. And so we have here this netzer, or diadem. It's a plate. If you can picture the high priest of old, you know how people in the Middle East sometimes wear turbans. And so he would be wearing a turban around his head and fastened onto this would be this diadem or plate of gold and on the front of it, it would say, uh, Holiness unto Jehovah. Now turn again please, and this is my main passage to Numbers chapter 6. And we'll read the entire chapter. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, and say unto them, When, or more properly, if, either man or woman shall separate themselves to vow a vow of a Nazarite, same basic word that we read back in uh, Exodus 28, the, the diadem, to separate themselves unto the Lord. And I'm going to do the nib thing here and read this with the um, gender neutral because it is and it's a, you'll notice that it's specifically said to be for both, both men and women they shall separate themselves from wine and strong drink and shall drink no vinegar of wine or vinegar of strong drink neither shall they drink any grape juice nor eat grapes or raisins. All the days of their separation shall they eat nothing that is made of the vine tree from the kernels even unto the husk. All the days of the vow of their separation there shall no razor come upon their head until the days be fulfilled in which they separated themselves unto the Lord. They shall be holy and shall let the locks of their hair of their head grow. All the days 
that they separated themselves unto the Lord, they shall come at no dead body. They shall not make themselves unclean for their father or their mother or their brother or their sister when they die because the consecration of their God is upon their head. All the days of their separation, they are holy unto the Lord. Part 2. And if any man die very suddenly by them, and they have defiled the head of their consecration, then they shall shave their head in the day of their cleansing. On the seventh day shall they shave it. And on the eighth day they shall bring two turtles and two, or turtle doves and two young pigeons to the priest to the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. And the priest shall offer the one for a sin offering and the other for a burnt offering and make an atonement for them for that they sinned by the dead and shall hallow their head that same day. And they shall consecrate unto the Lord the days of their separation and shall bring a lamb of the first year for a trespass offering. But the days that were before shall be lost because their separation was defiled. Part 3. Now you'll notice parts 1 and 2, nothing is said of law. Part 3, now we're into the law of the Nazarite. And this is the law of the Nazarite. When the days of their separation are fulfilled, they shall be brought unto the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. They shall offer their offering unto the Lord, one he lamb of the first year without blemish for a burnt offering, and one ewe lamb of the first year without blemish for a sin offering, and one ram without blemish for a peace offering. And a basket of unleavened bread, cakes of fine flour mingled with oil, and wafers of unleavened bread anointed with oil, and their meat offerings, and their drink offerings. And the priest shall bring them before the Lord, and shall offer his sin offering and his burnt offering. And he shall offer the ram for a sacrifice of peace offerings unto the Lord, with the basket of unleavened bread. The priest also shall offer his meat offering and his drink offering. And the Nazarite shall shave the head of their separation at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation, shall take the hair of the head of their separation, shall put it on the fire which is under the sacrifice of the peace offerings. And the priest shall take the sodden shoulder of the ram and one unleavened cake out of the basket and one unleavened wafer, and shall put them upon the hands of the Nazarite after the hair of their separation is shaven. And the priest shall wave them for a wave offering before the Lord. This is a holy this is holy for the priest with the wave offering, wave breast and heap shoulder, and after that the Nazarite may drink wine. This is the law of the Nazarites who hath vowed, and of their separation unto the Lord for their for their separation besides that which his hand shall get, according to the vow which he vowed so he must do after the law of his separation. Part 4. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto Aaron and unto his sons, saying, On this wise ye shall bless the children of Israel, saying unto them, The Lord bless thee and keep thee. The Lord make his face shine upon thee and be gracious unto thee. The Lord lift up his countenance upon thee and give thee peace. And they shall put my name with the children of Israel, and I will bless them. Seven blessings. One more, please, and you don't need to turn to this if you want to just keep your place in number six, but in Revelation chapter 14, I'm just going to read briefly. I'm not really going to talk much on this. 
Revelation 14, verse 1, And I looked, and lo, the Lamb stood on the Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his Father's name written in their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven, as the voice of many waters, as the voice of a great thunder. And I heard the voice of harpers harping with their harps. And they sung, as it were, a new song before the throne, and before the four beasts and the elders. And no man could learn the song that the 144,000 which were redeemed from the earth. These are they which were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. They are they which follow the Lamb whithersoever he goeth. These were redeemed from among men, being the first fruits unto God and to the Lamb. Now sometimes we look at these old passages, and they are from a people from a very long time ago and they are rather exotic and our tendency might be to just dismiss it and say well it isn't for today and if you said that you would not be entirely wrong I couldn't really fault you if you said well you know the Nazarite ship is gone it's not today Um, but I don't think it's irrelevant to us today and I think there is a sense in which some of it does apply to us. There are four parts that we speak of here. First there is the taking on of the Nazarite ship. Secondly there is the backsliding from the Nazarite vow. Thirdly there is the exit or the law of Nazarite ship and finally there is the blessing associated with Nazarite ship. And I looked at the piece in Revelation just for the simple fact of this, that although the the actual things that are in there are somewhat different, the pattern is very similar to this. And as a result, I think we can say that since that is still in a day that is yet future, I think it would be a mistake to simply dismiss this as, as something that happened a very long time ago and does not apply uh, to us today. Now we would notice that the people of Israel were originally intended to be a kingdom of priests. Now they sinned and that did not come to pass. But what we have in Numbers chapter 6 is we have a somewhat limited sense in which an Israelite could voluntarily take an oath upon himself, this oath of Nazariteship. And although he could never be a priest, because the priests were called from a particular family and the tribe of Levi, yet he could enjoy in himself some of the blessings that are seen, that are given to a priest. And so we might look at this um, as a little bit of grace, in the Old Testament, since sections 1 or 2 are not law, they're voluntary. Um, And we might look at it as an opportunity for an everyday man or woman in Israel to say, I want to set myself, I want to enjoy some of the privileges that a priest would enjoy. I would like to know what it is like to be a priest. Now they couldn't do a lot of the activity that was set apart for priests, but in a small way they could enjoy some of the blessings uh, of priesthood. And so there were three things that they were called upon to do. First of all, they were called upon to not 
take anything of the fruit of the vine. And we'll look at that as being a measure of self-sacrifice. Secondly, they were not to cut their hair. And we'll look at that as being, in some sense, a picture of headship or dedication to God. And then in the third thing, they were to avoid anything that was associated with death. They were to avoid death, the people of death or mourning, and they were to stay away from that. And we would look at that as being avoidance of defilement. Now you will notice that if we could put a, a heading over all of these, it would be, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Because none of them are particularly difficult to keep. We're going to see when we get to part two that when it comes to failure to keep them, the results are much more drastic. And when it comes to exiting from them, the results are very expensive, very costly. Um, But when we're just looking at the three requirements themselves, they are not particularly difficult to keep. And a Nazarite would go in and out of his daily activities, and with the daily people that he worked with, he didn't have to go to some special place. He didn't have to, if you will, become a monk. Um, You know, it's very popular today, and some monasteries make some living out of this by people who decide they want to enjoy some of the benefits of monasticism, and so they'll take a little bit of a holiday and they'll go off to a monastery, which is often set in a very nice spot, and it's very quiet and peaceful, and they go off there to meditate. But you'll notice that the the Nazarite is not asked to in any way set aside his daily activities or his daily practices. He just goes about things as he was before. But there are certain things that do separate him, in a sense, even while he is together with the others from the people that he is with. You notice as well that none of these three practices involve in any way sin or right or wrong. Um, They are simply a question of different practices, of being set apart in the way that they behave, but it's not a question of right or wrong. It's unfortunate that things, often separation becomes sometimes a question of right or wrong. And somebody will say, well, what's wrong with that? And then somebody else will say, well, what's right with it? And at that point, the conversation is ruined, uh, and you can't really go any further with it. Uh, But I think we need to notice that not everything can be measured by the standard of right and wrong. There was no right and wrong here. You'll remember some of you, if you were at the Livingston Conference, and I'll plagiarize freely here, Um, the story of the hedgerow that was cut down. Uh, There was a hedgerow between two fields, and the farmer on one side wanted to cut down the hedgerow, and so they went for a look at it, and uh, it was an environmental disaster. All these big, beautiful trees cut down, nothing left but a stump. But the farmer had a different take on that. He didn't look at it as an environmental disaster. It was true that too bad all the great trees were cut down, but he looked at the field, and what he saw in the field was that for 40 feet on either side of the hedgerow, the crops were stunted. The field was failing to produce 
its full potential because the hedgerow was drawing off all the nutrients from the field for 40 feet on either side of itself. And so when the, when the hedgerow came down, that allowed the fields on both sides to produce to their full poten- potential because they were not competing for the nutrients and the water uh, that were in the field. And I think we would understand something from that in the Christian life of that not everything involved in separation, and this was the, the application that was made of it, not everything involves right or wrong. Some things simply involve a choice between alternatives to allow things to reach their full potential. Not all of us, none of us in fact, can be everything to God. In fact, there is a danger in becoming a spiritual dilettante, to become a little bit of everything and not much of everything. I think it was F. Scott Fitzgerald who said life is best viewed from a single window. And it may pertain to a Christian's life as well, that it's not demanding, but it may involve concentration and the setting aside of things that do not contribute to the overall goal. Now you notice here that the first thing that the, that the Nazarite is told to do is to not partake of the fruit of the vine. He is not to partake of table wine, that would be diluted wine, uh, undiluted wine, vinegar from wine, uh, grape juice, um, regular grapes, I guess, on the vine, raisins, and anything else that could come from the vine. Now, what's the significance of the vine? And if you read many commentaries, they talk about the, the, the joy of the vine. I'm not really convinced that there's any real significance of the vine. It was a part of everyday living from them, but it was also a replaceable part of everyday living. If I were to say to Hannah right now, Hannah, and I don't want you to do this, but Hannah, go down to the AMP, and I want you to buy something there that can replace each one of these items. I want you to buy um, wine, but not grape wine, uh, vinegar, uh, some kind of fruit juice, uh, some kind of fruit, and some kind of dried fruit. And I venture to say that she would be back in not too long with something that would be a suitable replacement for each one of them. In other words, this was not a massive hardship for the Nazarite, but it was something that he would need to be alert to. During World War II, of course, many things were rationed, some of them out of necessity, but some of them, uh, it was not clear why they were being rationed. And someone once asked John Kenneth Galbraith, who was the head of the rationing office, why sugar was rationed, since there didn't seem to be any obvious reason for doing that. And he said, well, a lot of rationing was really psychological. We wanted the people on the American home front to feel that they were part of the war effort and that they were contributing. He said, and we felt that sugar was something that everybody enjoyed, but that really nobody needed, so we decided, we decided to ration it. Kind of an odd explanation for rationing, but that may be sort of the thought here, and that there is a thought of self-sacrifice, because a yoke may be easy and a burden may be light, but neither one of them are non-existent. 
They are still there, and they still would require some care. A Nazarite who was going about his daily business would need to be a little bit aware of what it was that he was eating. If they were invited out for dinner, he might have to tell the host, well, you know, uh, my wife is on the Nazarite diet, so, you know, just whatever you're making. And unfortunately, it's also true that they sometimes tried to trick them. When we come to the to Amos, we find there that they were trying to trick the Nazarites into drinking wine, which is very unfortunate. But there may be instances where people try to trick a believer, if you will, or to somehow or another get them from the self-avoidance that would be necessary. It's not so much to become an Amish person or to avoid light bulbs or anything like that. It's rather a case that there is an element of self-sacrifice in a believer's life. You know, I um, have a potentially fatal uh, food allergy, and I have had enough bad experiences with that over the years in emergency rooms to be careful to look at what it is that I am eating. And I imagine that I am not alone here. Perhaps you don't have food allergies, but other reasons you have to be somewhat alert to what it is that you are eating, whether it's you know you need to watch your salt or your sugar or your fat or whatever it is you need to be careful of. And so there needs to be an alertness. And so I think there's a principle here um, when we come to the the, uh, the first requirement here and that is that there there would need to be self-sacrifice and care in maintaining that in the Christian life and that self-sacrifice should really be directed toward making the believer fruitful to the Lord now the second one then is the not cutting his hair and you know I've heard seen read read many things where you know, the commentator would make it sound like the Nazarite was going around with dreadlocks. Um, if you think about it, and we know that typically a Nazarite vow was for 30 or 60 or 90 days, it's not likely that failing to cut your hair would really be very obvious. On a man, maybe after 90 days, it would begin to, would begin to look a little ragged. On a woman, if she had long hair to start with, it might not be obvious at all. Um, So it wasn't necessarily the outward appearance that was in view with the Nazarite. It was rather that this was a practice that was meant to bring holiness unto God. We see that here in verse 7. Because the netzer of his God, because the diadem of his God is upon his head, his uncut hair, or her uncut hair, was something that was brought unto God. So it was directed Godward and not outward. It might very well have been that most Nazarene Nazarites could go through their entire vow and end up at the law of the Nazarite, and nobody would have been aware, except maybe some in their immediate family or friends. Nobody surrounding them would generally have been aware that they had this vow, until it came to the end of it and they reached the law of the Nazarite and they had to cut their hair, shave their hair off. It may not have been been until that point that it was generally common knowledge that they had taken this vow. So this is a vow that could be done rather quietly. 
sometimes you hear people say, you know, uh, they, they, they're very upset because girls go outside the meeting and they immediately take their, their hat off and they say, well, you know, where's the testimony? But, you know, there's no testimony referred to in connection with the head covering. The head covering is in relation to God. It's in relation to the meetings of the assembly. It's in relation to the angels. So it's God who's looking down and seeing. It's not really the outside world because they're not going to understand anyway. And as far as the Nazarite was concerned, it wasn't really for the benefit of the people around that the Nazarite took his vow. It was really for the benefit both of himself and his God. He wanted to have a closer walk with Jehovah. And so that's why he or she took on this vow. Thirdly, and there's something, there's something I guess a little bit pathetic maybe in the third requirement, and that is that they not come at anything that was a dead body. Um, it's a little bit sad in a way that the old economy had nothing really to offer as far as death was concerned except put your hands over your, your eyes and make believe it doesn't exist you couldn't do anything for it um, and that is so different from our day not that people don't die today but we look in, at 1 Corinthians 15 and we see there a promise then shall death be swallowed up in victory so the believer does not live Although he lives in the expectation that he is going to die, yet he lives in the knowledge that death will, in a coming day, be swallowed up. The old, the old economy really had nothing to offer that. But when Christ entered into his sacrifice once for all, uh, he finished the work. He went into death, he rose from death, and he will arise. He will one day raise Christians victor over death. But I think there's nonetheless something for us in here, and that is in relation to defilement. Because defilement is not a question of sin. Defilement is a question of things that just become a part of us as a part of our daily walk. You remember the Lord Jesus on the night uh, in the upper room when he took the basin and he went around and he washed the feet of his disciples. And of course, not all of them, uh, but just their feet. And that was because the question wasn't to clean them, it was to clean their feet. It was not that they had done anything wrong. It was rather just if you were wearing sandals and you were walking along a dusty road, your feet were going to get dirty. You have a car and you take it out in the winter and it snows and it's dirty. And you say, I really need to get this in and get through a car wash. I don't, I don't feel good. It's just the car is defiled. It's dirty looking. There's nothing wrong with it. The car won't run better or worse because you got it washed. It just, you just feel a little bit better once the car is clean and nice and sparkling looking. It really has nothing more than that. And so defilement is that which would really take away from our enjoyment of fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the things of the world that would come in and while they might not be of any particular harm in themselves and they're not sinful, yet they would just because they are part of the day-to-day. And you think of what you go through every day. Um, and and, and you'll, you'll appreciate this and you'll see how sometimes, you know, a little bit of cleaning up 
you know, you, you've, you've had a, a tough year and you decide, you know, you're going to go down to the islands for vacation. Um, you know, and you go out to the airport and, of course, you have to deal with the TSA and your shoes and your belt and all the other stuff that goes along that. And then you get on the plane and that's delayed. Of course, they don't serve you food anymore. They just leave you there to rot. And your seat, you know, and you're in a middle seat and both people, you know, are my size on either side. Um, and then you got to get out to the other end and, you know, you you, you got to wait for your luggage and that didn't show up. And, you know, and you ask yourself, why did I do this? And really you're defiled. You know, just the whole struggle of getting there has defiled you. But, you know, you get in the taxi you know, and it's nighttime, and the taxi starts riding along the beach, and you can see the palms waving in the sea, or the warm sea breeze blowing in through the window. Um, and all of a sudden, it's all worthwhile. You say, you know what? It was all worthwhile to get here because basically the defilement, if you will, of traveling has been washed away. That which really makes life uncomfortable has been taken away from you, and now you're just, you know, you're just really enjoying. Uh, the comfort there. And I think there's a little bit of that in the Christian life of defilement. There are things that just are not so much wrong or bad as they just detract from the enjoyment of a believer in his life. And they need to be washed away. Now those are the three things of the first part. In the second part, we, however, we find a less satisfactory condition. We'll call this the Sisyphean um, requirements of Nazariteship. You remember old Sisyphus? He was that cruel, wicked king of Corinth, and in Hades, his uh, his job was to push the stone up the hill. And as soon as he got near the top, of course, it always let loose and rolled back down, and he would have to start all over again. And you'll notice when it comes to the Nazariteship, while it may be true that the yoke is easy and the burden is light, it's also true God expects it to be finished. He doesn't want the job left unfinished. He wants it done. Um, Don't start this thing. In other words, there's an if at the beginning. It's if he becomes a Nazarite. He's never required to, but if he's going to start the job, then he needs to finish it. Uh, And the consequences of it are pretty uh, severe. Because he's starting all over again. In fact, he's worse than starting all over again. No one, as we said, might be aware outside of the immediate family that they had taken on the Nazarite vow. But as soon as they backslid and lost it, everybody would become aware right away. A woman who maybe was just hadn't cut her hair, and all of a sudden she's shaven. She's got a bald head. And she's going around the camp, and that's going to be pretty obvious to everybody. So failure in a Nazarite ship, failure is much more costly. And failure means effectively starting all over again. There's no partial credit here. Years ago when I took the CPA exam, you know, you would get conditional credit. I think there were five parts uh, back then, this is 35 years ago, so I don't know if it's the same now. But you could you could get uh, if you passed a couple of the parts, as long as you finished to pass the remaining ones within a certain number of tries, you didn't necessarily have to go back and do the whole thing all over again. 
Nazarite ship didn't work like that. If you stumbled on the way, you started all over again. In fact, you didn't even start with whatever hair you got to, had to begin with. You started with a shaven head, and you had to grow it all back again. Um, so this was very, very costly um, for uh, a Nazarite that had had gone that. The, um, some of you may have read, and I was trying to think of where I read this or who wrote it, but a little piece uh, called In Praise of Plotters. Um, and I think the Nazarite ship would really give to us the... In pra- it's really in praise of plotters. It's not about grand schemes or of great hopes or of wonderful things. It's really taking a small requirement, but to finish it and to see it to its conclusion. You know, it, 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 we often go for things like, well, my all on the altar I lay, uh, and it sounds grand and wonderful. But, you know, much of that is really of the flesh. It's really carnal, uh, because it's really looking for things that would say how great I am. <coughs> The Nazarite wasn't asked to put his all on the altar. In fact, he wasn't asked to put anything on the altar. He was just asked to kindly refrain from eating grapes. Um, so there wasn't that much required, but he was asked to finish the job. I had a friend, uh, a guy who worked for me some years ago, and um, you know, there's nothing worse than somebody who doesn't finish the job. And he had an extension put on his house. I think it was a pretty expensive one. I think he might have spent a half million on it or so. And when it was all done, his intention was he was going to put a pool in the backyard. But the contractor left a mountain of dirt up to the second story sitting in the backyard. And the contractor kept asking for the final payment, which was $50,000. And he kept telling him exactly the same thing. You get your $50,000 when the the dirt's gone. Uh, and he said he called often, and then he called less often, and then finally he stopped calling altogether. And finally he said, after two years, my landscaper said, you know that pile of dirt you have in the back? He said, I have a big job. Would you mind if I could take some of that? And he said, you take the whole thing. And so he said, I never paid the 50000 he said, I finally got to put in my pool. So, but, you know, it's, it's just annoying when things don't get done. And I think that's what God is looking at here. He's not interested in grand things that we can accomplish. He's interested in seeing them brought through to conclusion. Um, if you look at many of the great men in the Bible, they didn't start with anything really all that exotic. It's true that Moses was a great man in his youth, but... In his middle age, he was just a shepherd on the backside of the desert. And when God called him, he wasn't really that enthused about going back and leading the people. Daniel didn't set out to become the president of the greatest nation on earth. Daniel just set out to become a vegetarian. Um, Peter, when the Lord called him, he said, uh, Leave me alone, Lord. I'm a sinful man. Um, So there were many men that really... God called and they really were doing small things. They weren't doing exotic things. But they were doing the things that that God had left for them to do and they were doing it to their completion. They weren't leaving them undone. And so I think there's a thought for us here in the the Nazarite in um, finishing 
the path that is taken. Now from verses 13 to 21, you'll notice I left a big chunk here, and I am not going to keep you on this one, because there are a lot of moving parts to this thing. And you'll notice it doesn't apply to us. Because a believer today, in his Nazarite walk, is never intended to finish it. He's never intended to make it a 30-day thing, or a 60-day thing, or a 90-day thing, and then he'll go off to the temple and he'll offer up all these things here. It's intended to be carried on until he's taken home. The law was for that time. The law is over. Christ suffered for us once and the law is put aside. And so all of these things, if we would take them, and the elaborate rituals that were taken here, all of them are not for us. Now you'll say, well, they were in the New Testament, weren't they? Yes, they were. Um, In fact, these rituals were too expensive for an ordinary man to pay. And so the practice became that rich men would pay. Uh, on behalf of a poor man or a poorer man who had taken the oath. You remember the Apostle Paul, he gets to Jerusalem and he's there with James and he's there with the other men from the Jerusalem assembly and they say, Paul, you know, we've got these four men that were, that were Nazarites and now they, need to, uh, now they need to get out of it. They need to offer up all the offerings. And you're rich, Paul. Um, you can pay for them. Uh, and so poor Paul, now you look at these and uh, you know, I don't know, but my guess is that it would cost a couple thousand dollars to get out of a Nazarite ship. And so you take that and you multiply it times four. And I don't know what Paul's opinion of that or how enthused he was that they were spending his money. Um, but nonetheless, he did it. Um, and so there was there was uh, that, that practice. Uh, that, that was the, the, the Nazarite uh, vow for that day but we don't find that really carried on that's really not part of a Christian practice, he was still operating uh, under the requirements of the law there so we would not look at that as really having anything for today for a, for a Christian today, the Nazarite walk is really a walk that would um, take us really home to glory it wouldn't, it wouldn't end, it doesn't really have a time when, it, when it's over and then finally, at the end, we have this lovely uh, blessing that is given here. And the Lord spake to him. And there's this, there's the three two-part blessings, which all three of them sound rather similar. And then finally, one more in verse 27, making for a total of seven blessings. So there were three requirements, and then there's these three two-part blessings that come along with it. And then one more blessing that's tacked on to the end here and so it says uh, and it's really a, a delightful blessing and with that I'm going to stop the Lord bless thee and keep thee the Lord make his face shine upon thee and be gracious unto thee you notice that uh, they were to make their face toward God they were to, to put that netzer that growth of hair that was to be toward God and so in return for that the Lord says the Lord make his face shine upon thee and be gracious unto thee the Lord lift up his countenance upon thee and give thee peace and they shall put my name upon the children of Israel and I will bless them and so with that we'll leave this chapter behind here 
Um, there's not an awful lot here for us as Christians, but I think there are some simple principles in the Nazarite walk. Uh, there's something we didn't really touch upon and can't touch upon uh, given the time, and that would be the Nazarite service of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, and that would be really a much larger topic. The Lord Jesus did not, of course, follow the principles here. Uh, in terms of their actual application, he drank wine, he came at dead bodies, and we have no nothing to tell us that he didn't cut his hair. I would assume whatever the frequency was of going to the barber there, that's how often he went. Um, so there's nothing said of that. And yet there are features in his life. In, in the upper room, he says, um, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine again until I drink it new with you. In Psalm 22, he says, I will fulfill my vow. And so there are, there are things about the Nazarite ship of the Lord Jesus that are also very useful, but we can't take the time to look at them today. Shall we pray?